This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It is good to see you again, buddy. We are back today with one of my favorite guests. I think you'll agree it's one of your favorite guests as well. Yes, sir. George Wilson is on the program again today. Of course, longtime listeners will know that George visits us a couple times a year Mm -hmm. to share highlights from the latest edition of the SEC Institute's quarterly newsletter, uh, I have to say, Chris, we've picked up a lot of new listeners lately. That's true. We're going to have to insert some kind of like sound effect, maybe a horn. I don't know. Daniel, Luke, let's get to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there it is. So a little background for the newer listeners out there. PLI's SEC Institute, or SECI, was founded in 1983 with a mission to provide the most up-to-date SEC reporting, compliance, and accounting education through innovative workshops and programs. Among the educational materials offered by SECI are its quarterly newsletters, which discuss current SEC focus areas, including new rules, amendments, rulemaking proposals, guidance from the staff, things like that. As I mentioned, with us today in the virtual studio is our good friend, George Wilson, who is a director of the SECI. At PLI, George teaches workshops covering a variety of SEC and FASB topics, He developed the Institute's initial Advanced Accounting and Reporting for SEC Professionals workshop, as well as workshops in a variety of technical areas like accounting for derivative instruments and hedging activities, and SOX 404, ICFR audits. Of course, I have no idea what any of that means, but George (laughs) does because of his background as an accounting professor in a past life. Anyway, George, it's really good to see you again. Welcome back to Insecurities. Oh, thank you, Kurt and Chris. It is great to be back here again and continue the dialogue about what's going on in the sort of frontier air realms of SEC reporting. And as you look around, it seems like a lot of the things we're seeing are what's new was new before or what's Mm -hmm. old is new again. All kinds of interesting things happening right now. And this is actually one of my favorite times of year because we're coming up on fiscal year end and Mm -hmm. uh, the SEC is getting a lot of stuff done before the end of the year, just exactly the same way I do. And I love, (laughs) from your perspective, there are two recent enforcement sweeps that just got announced. The Section 16 enforcement sweep and the the 12B25 enforcement sweep. This has got to be like Christmas time for you guys. Oh, it's great. Well, and we're, we're compounding the end of the fiscal year with the potential for a government shutdown. By the time this airs, we'll know. But (laughs) that's causing the staff at the commission to jam things out at an even more accelerated rate than I think we typically see this time of year. So it's hard to it's hard to keep up with it. Yeah. So there's a lot of good stuff going on. And it's interesting because one of the places there's a lot of good stuff happening is the office of the chief accountant. You know it, George. 
Yeah. So George, but before we get into the content, I feel like we always do this at the end of these episodes. I want to put it out there early, okay? Yeah. Because I know you've also had a schedule change at SECI. So for the listeners, for the newer listeners, tell us when is the next SECI quarterly newsletter coming out and how can listeners sign up? Oh, definitely. Yeah. If you go to the PLI webpage, just PLI.edu, you'll find a link there to SEC Institute which will bring you to our part of the homepage. It's got a list of all of our different workshops and things like that. And on that page, you will find a place where you can sign up for the newsletter. You've let me kind of get that in early. I also will mention, you can also <laughs> sign up for our blog, where we try to kind of oh, it's good. do short mm-hmm. and sweet little yep. update things. We don't try to tell you what to think. We try to tell you, here's what happened. You can go and read about it. So they're very short, and they usually have a link if you want to go find more. Um, and you can all you can subscribe to the blog there, too. We, yeah. we, we know everybody's busy, so we try to make all of these things brief and to the point with links where you can find more if you'd like to find more. So thank you, you for that, Kurt. Yeah, You can also follow SECI on LinkedIn, which is where I see a lot of their content. George, I think, is writing basically all the blogs or the posts that pop up on LinkedIn. <clears throat> Quality stuff. Anyway, I digress. George, you were trying to give us a silky smooth segue to talk about what the chief accountant has been up to, and I blew it. So we, we could tell, George, you've been on the, the podcast eight <laughs> times already in the past, oh and God. I want to bring out this little tidbit here. You are probably our most listened to guest, not just oh, yeah. uh, like Brett Favre because of the, the quantity of years that you've played <laughs> in the league, but also because of the quality. We can attribute almost 8% uh, of our listenership to episodes that feature you, George. So that's oh, a pretty well, pretty good turnabout as we approach episode 103 here. Oh, well, thank you for that. I have to say, I loved episode 100. The things you guys do are amazing. And if people have listened today, haven't listened to the Netflix Paradox episode, go back and listen to that one for sure. Yeah, we always I'm try to mix about, pop culture with our wonky and fresh takes. So Netflix is a great intersection. Yeah. It, it, it truly is. And I'm already planning to sort of pitch you guys with my next Netflix program, which is going to be only insider traders in the building. <laughs> I, well, I don't know if we can get the rights to that, George, but we'll work on yeah. it. Uh, we, we definitely can't with, get the same cast. That's, no, yeah, no, no, the, no. the budget here is going to be a little bit tough, but no, we always appreciate it. So, George, we want to get into some of the topics that are covering this quarter's newsletter, which I believe is being released here on September 28th. But so if you are not yet subscribed to the newsletter, please feel free to go back and, and review some of the content we're going to chat about here. George, I know you and I love this edition of the newsletter because of its focus on what you mentioned, the Office of the Chief Accountant. Uh, In the past few months, we've had a couple of statements from Chief Accountant Paul Muntner, uh, and we've actually talked about him before, right? We brought up a statement that he provided back in, I believe, October of 22 that made a lot of waves in the accounting world, and that was his focus on an auditor's responsibility for the detection of fraud in a financial statement audit. You can go back and listen to some of our discussions on that topic from back around that time period, and it seems that the chief accountant continues to release statements that are looking to maybe address the market or address what the Office of the Chief Accountant feels are emerging issues. So we want to talk about two of those today. The first was released on August 25th. Dr. Muntner's statement is titled, quote, the importance of a comprehensive risk assessment by auditors and management, end quote. George, I like that title because it addresses a key point in the risk assessment process, the role that both management and auditors have 
when it comes to that risk assessment process. And just to jump into two of those quickly, uh, regarding management's role, uh, Dr. Muntner says, quote, to be effective, risk assessment processes must comprehensively and continually consider issuers' objectives, strategies, and related business risks, evaluate contradictory information, and deploy appropriate management resources to respond to those risks, end quote. George, to me, this sounds like a heavy lift, right? Staying ever current, if you will, to steal a phrase. But also, it sounds like a, a message that's targeted directly at management teams who maybe are performing risk assessments, but hypothetically speaking, maybe sweeping some of that evidence or that information to support some of the less positive elements of a risk assessment, maybe under the rug, to look at the forest much more than the trees. I think that is an absolutely on-point description of one of the major points that Dr. Muntner says or makes in the statement, which is sometimes you'll find a, a, a problem in an area that seems sort of off the financial reporting trail, mm -hmm. and you'll tend to be a little dismissive about that. Maybe you'll find sort of a compliance issue in your human resources function where you haven't paid appropriate attention to compliance requirements in HR. And you know about that, but you think, well, that's HR. That's not going to impact right. on financial reporting. But that could be part of a more pervasive cultural weakness about compliance. So not being dismissive of this problem in an area that doesn't seem directly related to the financial statements is one of the themes that he brings out in the statement that I think is really important. And maybe it's my perspective, but I sort of, he does talk about the control environment later yeah. on in the statement. I take this as a, an exhortation to be thoughtful about issues that are more entity-wide and control environment based. And I think that's practical. I mean, mm -hmm. when you think about how we all evaluate ICFR, companies build controls, but almost all of the attention is process level kind of issues. Did old George down in accounts receivable yep. put his initials on the voucher before we booked that into payables? Those process level things are pretty straightforward. Entity level concerns are much more subjective and much more complex to deal mm -hmm. with. But being dismissive of things that could be indicative of problems within a corporate culture, I think is one of the things that he builds in and analyzing those risks. I also love the way he talks about business risks are changing. Yeah. And we need to make sure that our risk assessment process, and I, I think your focus on management is really appropriate here. Think about what happened to several mid-sized banks as interest rates rose. That's right. And those banks had actually, still with the reliance on short-term funding, decided that they liked sort of the longer-term yields they could get on longer-term instruments and ended up with the classic mismatch where their short-term funding went up in rate, but they didn't have the ability to change the rate on their long-term investments. That's a risk, and people really hadn't focused in on that risk. And you can go back and say, was it the regulators? Was it management? It all right. starts with mm -hmm. management has to understand the risk they're taking. So, And that risk assessment point. process is really... Uh... It's a moving target, right, in, in mm -hmm. terms of, of adjusting on an, on an annual basis. And I want to look, too, at, at the statement that uh, Dr. Muntner brought about regarding auditors. And, and just to quote his, his statement here, 
Quote, when identifying risks of material misstatement and designing appropriate audit responses, auditors should remain alert to potential changes in issuers' objectives, strategies, and business risks. Auditors should consider the possible impact of an issuer's public statements regarding changes in their strategy, board composition, or other governance matters, and whether such statements contradict management's assessment of its control environment, end quote. That speaks, George, exactly to what you just said, right? It's mm-hmm. We can't just be focused on these very... I won't use the word mundane, but very focused kind of audit, classic audit issues without considering that more broadly. But to me, it, it rings of, and I'm gonna, I want to quiz you here, Kurt, it rings of really a, an, an adjustment to one of those tropes that we have in the accounting world. And that is an acronym that also happens to coincide with a, a person's name, Sally. Kurt, are you familiar with what Sally is? I usually can at least venture a guess. But I, I, I don't know. Should I just throw out like mathy words like subtract, add? Is there wow, yield yes. at the Every end? Every accountant I, is just a calculator, Kurt. Every, you got that. Everybody gets a hint. Everybody gets a hint. The first word is same. Last chance, Mr. Wolf. Same. I don't know. I don't know. You got me this time. As, same, same as. Same as last year, Sally with one L, Kurt. Oh, so no. It, it is a trope, like I said, of accountants who are claimed to just take the work papers from last year, update the numbers, and roll them forward. Same as last year. <laughs> when I read what uh, Dr. Muntner said about auditors when it comes to this risk assessment process, it, it, it said to me directly, you can't just take what was said last year and consider that as you go forward. If the business is making different disclosures and, and issuing different public statements, you've got to be mindful of that. You can't just roll those work papers forward or prepare a risk assessment that is very similar to last year's, if not updated to that change. So, Kurt, you've learned something new today. Sally is something that you definitely want to avoid being <laughs> accused of imploring as you move yeah. that forward. And I want to yeah. take one quick note, Kurt, with your take on this. I know George and I will always wonk out on accounting. I'm interested in what your thoughts are and kind of two of the points that Dr. Muttner makes at the end of this statement. He says, quote, as Chair Gary Gensler has noted, there's a basic bargain in our capital markets. Investors get to decide what risks they wish to take, while companies that are raising money from the public have an obligation to share information with investors on a regular basis. Do you think that's kind of a solid underpinning for how we should consider financial statement disclosures and and risk assessments going forward? Or or is there more nuance there than just in that one line from Chair Gensler? No, look, I I think it's a great quote. I think it's about as close as you're going to get to encapsulating the entire securities regulatory regime in in just (laughs) a couple of sentences, right? (laughs) I mean, it's, we essentially live in a disclosure framework, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, in just those few words, I think it also um, kind of tease up some of the important policy debates of the day or the last several years, thinking about like if we have adequate disclosures, how paternalistic do we want to be yeah. about restricting investors, especially retail investors, ability to invest in different asset classes or different types of product. We can think about the the sort of ongoing debate about the definition of accredited investors. Uh, but be, but because I look at everything through an enforcement lens, it's that second half, Chris, that kind of yep. gets me, right, about whether they are, whether they're sharing information with investors on a regular basis, right? Like, that's where you get into trouble, whether it's a public company, which is kind of the context we're thinking about from an accounting perspective, mm-hmm. but also whether you issue funds or, or other products to the investing public. Like, what are you saying? Are you telling them things regularly? Are you being fully transparent? Are you saying what you actually do and doing what you say, right? So, Again, I like I love this quote because yeah. I think it kind of just pulls in the entire way we think about or maybe just I think about securities regulation. 
Oh, that's great. All right, we want to jump ahead to, or I guess jump back in time, and you can hopefully play the the theme from uh, Back to the Future in your own minds. Uh, we want to go back to a statement that Dr. Muntner made back in July of this year called, quote, the potential pitfalls of purported crypto assurance, in quotes, work, end quote. Uh, that's a loaded title for a lot of reasons. We'll talk briefly about this issue, but it really boils down to something I hope that our listeners can be advocates for and really try to help correct themselves and others when they're utilizing this language. And we'll talk about that in a second. But the phrase crypto assurance or crypto audits has definitely been a focus in the past few years. Uh, it's kind of a growing service line for accounting firms, as well as a, a growing need uh, of businesses with financial statements that deal with digital asset securities or, or crypto assets, whatever you want to call them. And there's real risks in applying the old audit standards, and I mean old as in recent audit standards, to this new technology, these new assets, and this new method of financial reporting. So Dr. Muntner lays out these potential pitfalls in, in three swim lanes, really. First, accounting firm liability for anti-fraud violations. Second, auditor independence issues. And third, Rule 102E liability. His focus in the first pitfall about anti-fraud violations is really where I want to have a lot of this conversation, because it comes down to what is communicated about and what is being represented regarding the use of the word audit. George, I can already see you not nodding. Kurt, I'm sure you see this a lot too. The word audit here is such a loaded term in what is expected when someone says we're having an audit or this has been audited. And hopefully, like I said, you, you listeners out there can all be advocates for the appropriate use of the word audit. When we say audit in these contexts, we mean a financial statement audit that provides reasonable assurance that there is no material misstatement in the financial statements under the accounting framework that those financial statements are presented. Yes, that long-winded uh, definition is a little bit harder to say than audit. But when accounting firms are being asked to perform crypto audit services or a business is representing that their blockchain, their token, their coin has been audited we start to blend this world uh, of non-audit services, as Dr. Muntner says, with that audit perception and, and mentality. George, I don't have a question. Hopefully you can hear my kind of frustration in splitting these hairs. It's something that Dr. Muntner talks about and we deal with a lot in our industry. You are preaching to the choir Amen. on this one, Chris. I, am I don't have a question. Song. This is amazing. <laughs> Just talk amongst yourselves, Jens. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sorry, Kurt. Sorry. We actually did our, we did a conference last Thursday, Friday for mid and small size companies. And we, when we were talking through some of the issues surrounding crypto work, I mentioned this statement and talked about how <clears throat> Mr. Dr. Munter actually called these purported crypto audits. That's right. <laughs> and I got a couple of fairly harsh comments because we had a fair number of auditors in the group saying, mm -hmm. these are not audits, they are agreed upon procedures. Exactly. And special reports. Mm -hmm. And when you look at how some of the managers of and the, and the leaders of these crypto firms describe them, they'll hold up that piece of paper and say, our crypto asset systems have been audited. Here's the report from XYZ CPA firm. Yep. 
And I think that's at the heart and soul of, of what Paul's talking about here. People describe that. <clears throat> I mean, when you are auditing financial statements, we, we could do a full scope audit just as you described, and I won't yep. try to repeat your words because you said it perfectly already. <laughs> you know them well enough, George. <laughs> but you could also do a limited review, and you yep. called that a review report, not an audit report. Mm -hmm. You could do a compilation, and you called that a compilation report, not an audit report. That's Right. When we did agreed upon procedures, we called that an agreed upon procedures report. And firms aren't holding their clients to those kind of descriptors. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so this is a question for you, Kurt. If so, we well, didn't want you to feel totally left out here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but if your client mischaracterizes the report that you've prepared, as an accountant, do you have potential liability for that situation? It's kind of the heart and soul of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think as a, like strictly speaking, yeah, you could, but I think sometimes it's more about the circumstances, right? I mean, I've actually had a case with a similar fact pattern where we've sort of had to describe to the enforcement staff why something was described the way it was. It, wa it wasn't like any type of nefarious intent. There were reasons why it was described in a certain way. And so maybe as a technical matter, was that incorrect or perhaps improper? Maybe. But in the context, it kind of made sense. And so we're able to sort of get over that hump. That probably for, I know you guys are both sort, sort of like very rules-based that you won't be happy with that <laughs> art, not science answer. But I mean, that's my experience. Yeah. And I think too, we talk about misrepresentations, right? We don't always mean that from a nefarious nature. You may have an agreement with a, a bank that requires your balance sheet to be audited, right? And and if in year one, it's a, a straightforward, relatively uh, simple uh, process that can get done. In year two, if you start holding digital assets, the agreement between you and that loan and that a bank officer may continue to use the word audit and you may agree on the side that, okay, we now have digital assets here. We'd like to have some type of evaluation, attestation of those types of things that, again, George and I and now hopefully Kurt and the rest of our listeners would say is not an audit, but they may need to fall under the terms of that agreement. And that technically, to Kurt's point, may be a misrepresentation of what's worked there, but it's not, it's not like anyone's trying to hide the ball, right? They're trying to meet the standards of what's been in place in the past. So, I mean, and we deal with this all the time too, outside of just the crypto world, especially in the forensic accounting vein, we get asked to do forensic audits of things all the time. Mm -hmm. And George will agree that that's agreed upon procedures. That's a consulting engagement. That's not an audit engagement for basically every reason in the rule book. But the term of art here in, in, in the parlance that we use is people like to say audit. So please, all of our listeners, if you've hung in with us for 103 episodes, just consider when someone uses the A word, using it appropriately to match what we believe in the accounting profession should be an audit versus those non-audit or consulting services. Okay. I, don't I think we spend... just found the clip for this episode. I mean, <laughs> that's you your new bumper sticker. Us, that's right. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to put that on. Know, the... <laughs> what, know when to use the A word. I mean, that's <laughs> gold. Uh, I love well, it. I, I love it. I, I think in the statement, there's a fairly extreme uh, piece of advice, <clears throat> which is that if auditors believe their client is misrepresenting their report, they should actually consider a noisy withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty that's a pretty extreme statement, but I think it, it evokes a concern that people are being misled because when someone says, here's our audit report, 
people who aren't <clears throat> as deeply into the A word as we are going to yep. think that's just like audited financial that, statements. Th that would probably cause an enforcement problem. I'm just going to yeah. throw that out yeah. there. The, the noisy <laughs> withdrawal is, is not a good fact. That, yeah. Exactly where I was going to go. <laughs> you, you need to be careful. And, and for attorneys to do a noisy withdrawal is even more complex. So. That's right. I don't want to gloss over the two other elements that Dr. Munder talks about, but they're much more what I would say kind of standard considerations of anyone mm -hmm. performing services for a client. The second being uh, independence considerations. If you are going to perform these non-audit services around crypto or digital asset securities, be mindful of how they may impact your standing relationship with a client. Or if you are performing one of these non-audit services in year one, and then you're asked to perform a financial statement audit in year two, you may have to evaluate whether or not you can do that independently based on your own interpretation of the system in that non-audit year. And then secondarily to that, and I think one of the things that a lot of accountants out there will know well is the Rule 102E liability, right? Are you able to, quote, perform the tasks diligently and with a reasonable degree of competence, end quote? That's something that auditors consider on a regular basis when it comes to crypto. That's a whole new world to consider what your procedures are, how they fit into the audit services or the non-audit services you're performing. And you cannot hide under the, I didn't know what the issues were. I didn't know what the standards were from the 102E perspective. So all that is to say, there are some issues as we consider performing these non-audit services for for businesses, for issuers out there, be sure that you're using the A word appropriately. Kurt, we'll come up with a good insecurities podcast swag with a statement. Audits audits by another color, like that horse in, in The Wizard of Oz. We'll have to see. <laughs> we'll have to work on that. But We'll get it on a mug. That's right. Before we move on too far from this, I want to talk about, George, one of the bigger topics that was covered over the summer. Uh, we're actually, hopefully guys like you and I feel very appreciated when lead anchors on business networks across uh, the spectrum are talking about accounting standards. And that's really where FASB has pointed its direction as it relates to the actual accounting treatment for crypto assets. So George, I want to give you a few minutes here to talk to us about where we were and where we're going in the actual accounting treatment of these digital asset securities. <clears throat> there is a FASB standard, just as you said, Chris, that's almost, it's actually in the final standard phase. And Kurt, I'm just going to apologize in advance for this one. <laughs> it's got debits and credits. But boy, when you use the words more art than science, that is totally true for crypto assets. What's mm -hmm. the best way to communicate a crypto asset position to an investor in a company? And anybody who wants to really <clears throat> look at the deep implications of that question, go look at a company called MicroStrategy. MicroStrategy is a company that is a software company, but also because they were sort of struggling, decided that they would enter into the business of holding basically Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies. So huge cryptocurrency holdings. It's something they've invested in for profit purposes. Now, the existing accounting model has been well, they don't fit the existing accounting model. That's right. So like accountants, what we do, when, whenever there's something new and we can't figure out what to do with it, we get out our shoehorns 
and we look for a likely place and we shoehorn that thing into something that fits our rules. I hate to use that word, Kurt, but yep. it fits our rules. So the only place that when you think about a crypto asset, the only place that kind of thing felt this felt right was to call it an indefinite live intangible asset because it's not tangible and it does have an indefinite life, but it's not a security. It's not an equity security. It's not a financial instrument per se. So we shoehorned him into this indefinite live intangible asset model. And we actually said, well, the way you account for that then is you recorded a carrying value. And if you have evidence of an impairment, you write it down. But when you write it down, that becomes its new carrying value. So you never write it back up. And by their nature, crypto assets are very volatile. They go up and down in value all the time. So are we really doing a reasonable job of communicating to investors, users of the financial statements, the risks and potential rewards of holding that asset? Well, I would actually argue no. So the FASB actually has a project that's pretty near completion. It's at the final stages to issue a final standard. It does define crypto asset in a fairly narrow way. So some tokens and cryptocurrency things won't fit into the definition. I won't go into all the details there, but it essentially says you're going to carry those at fair value. You're going to adjust them to fair value every period. And every period gains and losses are going to go through the income statement. Now, a lot of people would think, well, that's how you should have accounted for the darn things anyway, because their, their value goes up and down. They're very volatile. That's the nature of the beast. We should communicate that volatility in the financial statements. <clears throat> Actually, there's a company that did that. It's called the Crypto Company. The Crypto Company, uh, which was headquartered way out in Southern California, was for a while almost a $12 billion company, and they valued their crypto assets at fair value gains or losses going through the income statement way before the FASB's project. And when that came to light, they decided, well, that's wrong. They actually had to restate their financial statements. It was a massive restatement. And now I think they probably believed that was the logical way to account for the things, but they never got into the official guidance and ended up restating. So now the FASB has come through and said, no, we think that's the best way to do it. So it'll be interesting. That standard's supposed to be out sometime during the fourth quarter. You, you never know at the FASB schedule, but mm -hmm. I think that'll be an improvement to the financial reporting. I can't leave that topic, though, without talking about the audit implications. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. I don't know anybody who really has a good handle on simple audit objectives like existence and ownership for crypto assets. Now, there is one organization I should mention. The AICPA has a group that's built some guidance for auditing crypto assets. And anybody who's involved in auditing crypto assets needs to look at that guidance because while it's from the AICPA, it's not the PCAOB's guidance, it's the only thing out there that provides any real pragmatic support for people who are in that field. And actually, if you go back to the crypto companies' auditors, the auditors got in huge trouble because they didn't really understand how to audit crypto assets. It's a great case study for anybody who wants to get involved in auditing these kinds of assets. 
and and this is different from that purported crypto audit. Yeah, this is actually auditing full. The so I'm going to use the real A word here. Just that's right. Yes, approved usage here, George. Audit, (laughs) audit of of the financial statements of a company that holds crypto assets. So. There are a lot of crazy things going on here, and it is Wild Westy in a way, so we'll see where it all ends up. But I think we've, we're taking a very positive step forward with this new stat- statement from the FASB. And it'll be good, George, to, to have you on a future episode. We can talk about those implications as they happen. So. Yeah. I can see, Kurt, you're getting a little bit tired of this accounting speak here. Yeah. Let's shift gears and maybe focus on something that uh, many of our listeners are also interested in that's also uh, a focus of the SECI newsletter for this quarter. Yeah, when I read through it, and George is always kind enough to share a copy with us, there's, the things that tend to catch my eye aren't necessarily the same things that catch Chris's eye. Mm-hmm. But in this, that's, in the latest... That's great, though, because they counterbalance each other, and you guys put the whole picture together. I love that. that that's the hope. That's, that's right. That's the hope, George. <laughs> so this edition, I focused a little bit on a section that touches on some recent updates coming out of the SEC's office of the whistleblower. Look, it's been a busy busy few months over at the office of the whistleblower. If we go back to May, I know May is out of scope for this edition of the SEC I quarterly, but back in May, the SEC announced its largest ever whistleblower award, $279 million. That's a, a cool quarter of a billion dollars uh, to a whistleblower. That more than doubled the previous record of $114 million. Uh, They've continued on a pretty fast pace of announcing awards. In July, there was an award for $9 million. In uh, early August, there was an award to seven individuals totaling $104 million. I will just say uh, the order announcing that award is a a pretty good read. Uh, There was some squabbling among the whistleblowers to figure out who would get what percentage. (laughs) It's interesting. Uh, And then most recently, there was an $18 million award announced to a single whistleblower. And in that award announcement, Cree Kelly, who's the chief of the whistleblower office, noted that, quote, whistleblowers continue to play an essential role in assisting the agency in detecting misconduct and bringing securities law violators to justice, end quote. So- I mean, George, we don't always talk about whistleblowers or we don't always see whistleblowers in the quarterly update. This obviously caught your eye too. So we'd love to kind of get your reactions on what's happening um, with whistleblowers at the SEC. Well, I have to say, if I ever decide to stop teaching workshops and go out and interview for jobs, I'm just going to keep interviewing until I find a company where I think someone's perpetrating material fraud. <laughs> and then I'm going to go to work there and use that opportunity to blow the whistle. Because if you're not, for those listeners who aren't super familiar with the direct to the SEC Dodd-Frank whistleblower system, if your information meets certain criteria, it has to be original, it has to be important to the enforcement. And the enforcement results in fines of over a million dollars to the perpetrator of the fraud, you can receive up to 30%, between 10 and 30% of those funds uh, based on the quality and the timeliness of what you disclose as a whistleblower. And it is, I think, a huge piece of input to the SEC enforcement mm-hmm. process. When we hear enforcement people talking at our conferences, there's always a commercial for this program. Yeah. Yeah. And it has the payouts is well over a billion dollars that's been paid out. 
And so mm-hmm. I think that we'll continue to see increases here. And then I think, Kurt, you're probably going to mention the other kind of enforcement sweeps that the staff is doing and the cases they're bringing against companies who try to limit whistleblowers. Yeah, I, I was actually. You read my mind. And uh, hat tip to our good friend Jane Norberg at Arnold Importer. She wrote a really good client alert on this. Yeah. Just It might have even been this week, but very recently. And so what, what George is alluding to is uh, a couple of recent SEC enforcement actions, settled SEC enforcement actions against companies that used employee separation agreements that violated the SEC's whistleblower protection rules. As George mentioned, this was part of a sweep. The SEC enforcement staff is out looking at a bunch of companies' separation agreements to see how they read and if they could potentially violate Rule 21F17, which prohibits anyone from taking steps, quote, to impede an individual from communicating directly with the commission about a possible securities law violation, including enforcing or threatening to enforce a confidentiality agreement, end quote. Uh, It's a big deal because this type of language that could be interpreted as prohibiting someone from talking to the SEC or another government agency is strictly forbidden, but it it creeps into agreements still. And that was a couple of the key takeaways from these recent cases. One is that both of the companies that settled these actions had these sort of catch-all carve-outs for talking to the government. These are pretty common now, right? I mean, I know I see it in in my work when we're negotiating agreements on behalf of clients. We see this kind of language in there. We look for it to make sure that it's there. And it basically says you're allowed to talk to the government because you're blowing the whistle because you got a subpoena, whatever the circumstances might be, right? So in these cases, that type of carve-out was there, but there was contradictory language elsewhere in these separate in these separation agreements. And because if you're the employee who's being separated, you kind of look at this and it's like, well, I, what do I believe? What should I do, right? So the SEC takes a very dim view of those kind of contradictory agreements. Uh, a, a couple interesting things here as well. One is that the SEC is just hyper-focused on the agreements themselves. No one here actually complained. No whistleblowers were known to be actually impeded from talking to the SEC. They just didn't like the agreements themselves, the language in the agreements themselves. And and the last thing I'll mention, then I'll get off my soapbox, is that one of these companies was actually a private company, right? So private companies can issue securities too, and private companies can absolutely be dinged for language in its agreements with its employees that would prohibit them from going to the SEC to report a potential violation of the federal securities law. So again, hat tip to Jane Norberg. She did a lot of the heavy lifting for me. Wanted to share that with you. But George, obviously, you've been thinking about this too. Oh, I have. And I love the point you made. I think it was a monolith resources that was actually a private company. Mm-hmm. And all the and this is the latest, those two cases are the latest in a string that go all the way back to Brinks Corporation that happened shortly after the whistleblower system was put in place. And the important issue, I think, for companies to think about there is everybody who's been enforced against has also paid significant fines because yes, of these agreements. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think for the SEC, you, you hit on this earlier, George. It, this continues to be a very important source of information for the enforcement staff. Mm-hmm. And so they are going to take seriously any type of conduct, any actions, any agreements that could have the effect of chilling a whistleblower. Right. And so that's why we see those cases. 
Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I couldn't resist. I've already put up blog posts about, I put up a blog post about the first one and then less than two weeks later, the second one came along. So pretty easy post. Yeah, check them out on LinkedIn. Go to PLI.edu. We'll, we'll plug it all day. We don't want to get into the correlation <laughs> or causation, George, between your blog posts and the enforcement actions that come, but no, no, do that no, at no. another time. All right, George, we want to wrap up with a couple oh, can of I, quick... May I toss please. in one more quick whistleblower thing? Definitely. Yeah, you please. guys have done a couple of excellent episodes with participants in the whistleblower bar. And I think those are important to call out. I think anything we do to help whistleblowers be comfortable that while there are going to certainly be consequences and it will mm -hmm. be a life-changing event, you can do things to manage those consequences. And the whistleblower bar and then the anonymity that you can find there are good. So anybody who's in that, this is really totally a commercial for people to do the right thing. <laughs> but anybody who is actually in a situation where something doesn't look right, check out those episodes about the whistleblower yeah. bar. Yeah, I think I'll just, I'll list them off for the listeners. Again, we've got some newer listeners out there, but you can go all the way back to uh, an episode with Matt Stock. That was like yeah. episode five, six, seven, something like that from the Zuckerman Law Firm. He kind of gives a perspective of someone who represents whistleblowers and talks about the rules and what it's like to actually prepare and submit a, a form TCR that is a, a complaint to the SEC. We also had Tom Muller on who wrote a New York Times bestselling book about whistleblowers. I thought he was great in just yeah. sort of talking about the psychology and talking yeah. about the challenges that whistleblowers face, why they do it. So that's a really, really excellent episode. It's one of my personal favorites. And then most recently, I've already mentioned her, but we had Jane Norberg on. She used to be the chief of the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower. Now she's at Arnold and Porter. She thinks a lot about how companies should tackle whistleblower challenges, thinking about things like creating a culture of reporting, how to deal with whistleblower reports from a compliance perspective, what to do and not do with these agreements. So I think across those three episodes, you kind of have the waterfront in terms yeah. of thinking about what motivates a whistleblower, what do you do, and how should companies think about it? Excellent. Well, let's wrap up our uh, discussion today, George, with two quick hits from the financial reporting side beyond just that discussion of those crypto developments earlier. And I think we're starting a movement here, George, not just to use the word audit appropriately, but also to take some of our favorite abbreviations and turn them into something a little bit more fun. You'll reference our last episode with you, George, <laughs> episode 91. We called it the Corp Fin Candy Dish. But it's not really about sweets, right? It's about these C and D eyes. And, and so remind us again, George, what C and D eyes uh, stands for and what they are. Well, that stands for Compliance and Disclosure Interpretation. Mm -hmm. And those are guidance from Corp Fin. So they're not official, voted on by the commission guidance. They're staff guidance. But they're staff interpretations of how to address certain reporting or legal issues. And I think they primarily come from the CorpFin legal staff, but there's always a little, every once in a while one with a little accounting fund there. You got it. And yeah. right for us here on the Insecurities Podcast. And the newsletter this quarter talks about Form 4 reporting and, and the CNDIs or the candies around the updates to the Form 4 itself. And George, this is actually a, a hot topic here on the Insecurities Podcast over the past 18 months. It really touches on that 10B51 insider trading 
plan issue that we've talked about. As many of our older listeners know, and hopefully our newer ones will go back and, and learn, there's been a changing focus on the evaluation of and the effectiveness of these 10B51 trading plans for insiders. We've had a variety of guests on from the academic side as well as from the practitioner side to to share some of that information. And I dare say, Kurt, maybe, and I'm putting a big caveat here, maybe those episodes have helped inform some of those decision makers at the commission as they rolled out some new rules last year around the 10b51 program. I'm not again, a correlation and causation yep, yep, will leave yep, to others yep. to discuss. But George, talk to us a bit about how the candy dish is being updated as it relates to form fours. Well, one of the principal updates goes back to a change in the Form 4 from the Rule 10b-51 plan that says if a trade was executed pursuant to a 10b-51 plan, you should make a notation on the Form 4. There's a box to check. And I won't pretend to be any kind of an expert on Section 16 reporting, but Form 4 is, of course, the form you have to file thanks to the former CEO of Chair of Enron within two business days after a trade occurs in your company's stock. And if you have entered into a 10b-51 plan and you've done all the new Rule 10b-51, sort of jump through all those hoops, you had a cooling off period, you entered into it in That's good right. faith, you've got the certification, all the stuff you guys have talked about in your earlier episodes. If all that's there and that trade was pursuant to that plan, put a little checkbox there. I think that's actually a really good thing. In our workshops, we've always advised people when you do a Form 4, if that trade was pursuant to a Rule 10b-51 plan, make a note about that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> because, for example, if you have a trade that occurs and you file a Form 4, and shortly after that, you release material non-public information that affects your stock price, Someone can go back to that Form 4 and say, they seemed to have traded right before that. Something doesn't feel Very right. Very advantageous, there. right? Yeah. But if you've yeah. said this was pursuant to a previously implemented Rule 10b-51 plan, then it's a little clear that you didn't trade on the basis of that MNPI. Yeah. That's my I, favorite I, I would underscore that. Idea. No, it's a great point, George. It's a, I mean, absolutely 100% agree. It, it, it will avoid problems down the road. Yeah, and I, and I will credit my attorney colleague, Gary Brown, for any legal thought I ever have. <laughs> I <just heard laughs> so much from Gary. That's um, great. As, as a simple country accountant, he helps inform me all the time. So those are pretty techy new CNDIs. There are a whole bunch of CNDIs that are coming out now in that. I think I love the way you talked about the busy run-up, Kurt, to the potential shutdown. Hmm. There are several CNDIs that have been issued. They just issued some new ones yesterday for a pay versus performance disclosure. Hmm. Those CNDIs were so wicked technical, they even got into things like, how do you handle options that have a market condition for vesting? They gave me a headache, I'll be honest. <laughs> so technical. But they also did a really cool one about the non-GAAP measure guidance applying to measures disclosed in the executive comp disclosures in SK402. Great. You can tell that's super fresh in my head because I was just writing about it before we started talking. So we, Candy Ditch continues to be filled at Corp Fin. Uh, and, I, I love it. I, I imagine so, Jim and Pam at the office, right? She always had those jelly beans at the reception desk. That's yeah. kind of where we're seeing this yeah. candy dish getting refilled uh, along the way. So <laughs> Next time you guys do a broadcast or do a webcast from the building, you have to go up to the Corp Fin office and see if there is. See if it's if actually they, yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> On Mr. Gerding's desk. I, if there isn't, you should take him one. That's, that oh, would be we'll good. do that. 
Well, George, as always, we really love uh, kind of capturing the moment with you on these kind of quarterly newsletter uh, bases. Uh, always great to have you here to, to really clarify some of the things that Kurt and I can wonk out about as we get into it. So we always love having you. Thanks for taking the time and we really appreciate it. It is always a privilege and a delight to be here, guys. Thank you again and take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, George Wilson of the SEC Institute at PLI. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on X or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu slash membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.